Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast of the Sunday morning sermons of the Bullard Church of Christ in Bullard, Texas. We hope you'll be blessed, challenged, and encouraged by today's lesson. Good morning. So wonderful to be here together this morning. We thank you for your presence and your participation in our worship this morning. Uh, we start a new series on First and Second Peter this morning. I hope you'll participate with us each week, and uh, I think it will be uh, enriching to you. A man walked over to a Little League baseball game wanting to sit down and watch a game, and uh, the game had already started. He asked a boy in the dugout what the score was, and the boy said to the man, 18 to nothing, and we're behind. The man said, boy, I bet you're discouraged. And the little boy said to the man, why would I be discouraged? We haven't even got up to bat yet. (laughs) That's a lot of hope, isn't it? (laughs) That little boy was full of hope. That's one of the themes of 1st and 2nd Peter is hope. And that's what we want to spend some time talking about. Peter wrote to Gentile Christians who were spread out throughout the area that is modern-day Turkey. And that's who he's writing to in these letters. He's writing to encourage them to hold on to their faith even in the face of suffering, even when they face trials, even when they're struggling, even in persecution. Hold on to your faith. Don't lose your hope. Peter wants to tell them that even when it looks like you're losing, like this little boy's baseball team, even when everything looks like you're losing, hold on to your hope. Because it's certain and sure. I don't know about that little boy's baseball game. But Paul is saying that your hope, your heavenly hope, is sure and certain. So in this series, Hope, Holiness, and Heaven, we'll look at First and Second Peter. And written by a guy, Peter, who was with Jesus during his ministry. Peter was right there as Jesus taught and performed miracles. He was was there with Jesus. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the closest people to Jesus in his time on earth. Peter was, uh, we know, uh, a man of boldness and rashness. He could be bold and brave, and he could also stick his foot in his mouth and and cause a lot of problems too. But his passion for Jesus was always there. He wore it on his sleeve. And sometimes he really blew it, like when he denied Jesus three times. But yet he was restored. He never gave up, even though he had Messed up so many times. He made a lot of mistakes, but he learned to walk by faith, didn't he? He learned that on the water that day, didn't he? He learned something about walking by faith. He became a leader in the early church, which we'll see in the book of Acts, which we're studying on Wednesday nights. We know that Peter was a powerful leader in the early church. And Jesus even said that Peter's type of faith was the type of faith on which he would build his church. That rock, that strength of his faith. He said, that kind of faith, that's the faith I'm building my church on. Faith that just believes I am who I am. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 2. Peter writes, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter takes some terms, elect exiles, that were only used previously of Jewish people, the Israelites, who were in the Old Testament days God's chosen people. And he takes these terms and he applies them to, to Gentile Christians at that time, to the church, to people who had been converted to Christ. He's showing us something in his letters that God's people are no longer the uh, ethnic people of Israel, the Jewish people, that he began with them in the Old Testament times, but his plan was always to create the church. It was predestined in his foreknowledge. And so the church now, those who put their faith in Christ, are God's people in Jesus' time in the, uh, new under the new covenant that Jesus brought to us. And so he's using these terms and applying them to God's people today. He's saying that now God's chosen people are those who respond in faith to Jesus. So the exiles of the dispersion would normally have referred to Jewish people scattered about, and yet they weren't facing that same kind of persecution. They were just there in the area of modern-day Turkey. But he applies that to them because he knows that they experience persecution and suffering for their faith. No longer was it from the Jews, now it was from the empire of Rome. Rome was the one who would persecute them for their faith. Rome now was led by Nero, one of the worst, most evil, wicked, horrendous emperors that they knew. And in the time of Peter writing these two letters, Nero was emperor. So Christians knew persecution. It wasn't sustained and ongoing, but it would flare up from time to time. And it, 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 whenever you know, things got hot, a lot of times Christians would get blamed and persecuted. Now, in, in the, 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 he's writing to these Gentile Christians and he says that they're exiles. Why does he call call them exiles. They weren't cast out because of their faith. They weren't sent out somewhere because of their faith. They're exiles because they realize, and Peter is communicating to them, that their world, this world is not their home. They knew, and he's reminding them, that they have a home in heaven. We're talking about hope, holiness in heaven. Their home, their true home, was eternally in heaven with their Father and the Savior. And so their home, wherever it might be on earth, this was not their permanent home. In verse 2, look at verse 2, we see the Godhead described. And the Godhead all involved in salvation. The foreknowledge of God. He foreordained, He predestined, He purposed His church. He purposed that, that He would have a church that whosoever will obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
whoever would be united with Christ in baptism, that they will be in His church and the sanctification of the Spirit. You see, we're given the Spirit when we're united with Christ in baptism, Acts chapter 2. And the Spirit sanctifies us, sets us apart for His work, for His glory, for His service. And then this obedience to Jesus Christ. Those who obey the teachings of Jesus and continue to obey the teachings of Jesus. We see the Godhead at work in salvation. This part about sprinkling with blood, it's interesting that Peter writes this to Gentiles because this is rich in Old Testament meaning. And and Jewish people, Jewish Christians would have understood this. But the sprinkling with blood was going back to the Old Covenant when blood was used in different ways. Uh, Three main ways. Blood from the sacrificed animals uh, that the Jewish people would, would sacrifice to God was used to cleanse symbolically. It was used to sprinkle on someone or something to set them apart for service. And it was also used to sprinkle to symbolize obedience and commitment to God. That's how blood was used. And then in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we're saved by the blood of Jesus. In fact, in verse 29... Uh, Peter will say that Jesus, uh, it was His precious blood that was shed on the cross that saves us now. And so Peter makes this great connection for these Christians that he writes to. Look at verses 3 through 9. It's a few verses though, but let let me read that. Follow along with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Christians owe everything to God, don't we? Everything. Our life, our breath, everything we owe to God. And it's out of God's loving kindness, His mercy, that He initiated the opportunity for us to have salvation. He's the one who gave the sacrifice of His Son so that we could have hope. Because without Christ, without salvation, without a perfect sacrifice for our sins, there was no hope. We would be without hope in this world. And it's God's loving kindness that brings us, the lost sinners, into a right relationship with Him through His Son. It's the mercy of God that causes us to be born again. That's an interesting way that Peter puts that. 
that his mercy causes us to be born again. In verse 23, he says it again, and he's describing a, a person becoming a Christian. He's describing a person becoming a Christian through baptism. You see, God is the one who makes Christians. We don't do anything. We can't fix ourselves. All we can do is respond. And baptism isn't a work that you do to earn salvation. It's a work that God does in you to grant you salvation, as we see all throughout the New Testament. God is doing the work in the water to make you new, to raise you up in newness of life so that you have that hope, so that you can have that living hope, that salvation, that eternal home in heaven. Paul said it like this in Colossians 2.12, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through the powerful working of God. Who's the one that did the work? God does the work on our lives when we're united with Christ. When a person rises up out of the water, we rise to a living hope. And Peter says that this hope is imperishable. It is uh, undefiled. It's imperishable. It's a hope, not like uh, a hope that I hope I don't run out of gas before I get to Brookshire's. It's not a hope like I, I hope someone left me some ice cream. It's not that kind of hope that you know might not work out too well for you when it comes to the ice cream part. And you might coast in on neutral to Brookshire's if you, if you let it go too long. It's not that kind of hope where someone's got to bring you a gas can. It's a hope that is sure and certain, a living hope. Why is this hope living? This hope is living because Jesus is alive. Do you remember he spent 40 days after his resurrection appearing to his disciples, appearing to many, many people. He was saying, I'm alive. Believe in me. And then after that, the church was established. Our hope is a living hope because Jesus lives. And because he lives, our hope lives and is certain. So many put, people put their hope in their skills, in their intelligence, in their education, in their money. Put their, their hope in science, their hope in politics. We do that, don't we? Well, we put all of our hope in politics, all of our hope in things of this world. And, and those are not inherently bad in and of themselves. But every one of those will fail you. Every one of those will fade away. None of those are eternal. There is only one eternal hope, and that is in our hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. What then is this hope? Our hope is this inheritance of eternal life. It's imperishable. What does that mean? It's not like the food in your pantry that goes bad, that has an expiration date. It can't go bad. It can't spoil. It can't be destroyed. It's undefiled, meaning it can't be polluted. It can't be poisoned. It can't be made impure. Our hope is uh, uh, un unfading. It's not going to fade away. It's not going to wear out and waste away. And all of a sudden, it's not there anymore. And this wonderful hope of ours is kept in heaven for us. And guess what? Peter tells us that God guards our hope 
with His power. He guards our salvation with His power. Look at verse 5. But notice that He guards it with His power with a condition. The condition is our faith. He guards it through our faith. So if I decide... God, I'm just not interested anymore. God, I don't believe anymore. God, this salvation thing, this God thing, this, this whole thing, I, I'm just, I've got other things to do. I don't believe like that anymore. I'm going to go do some things over here and I'm going to turn away from my salvation. Then there's no faith there in Him and He's no longer guarding that salvation. And yet He stands there like the father in the story of the prodigal son, waiting for you to turn back and run back and say, no, I want it back. I want to be with you. I want to live with you. I've come back to my faith. But He only guards it as long as we continue to want Him to guard our salvation. In other words, we can't just say, I'm a Christian, I have faith in you, see ya, and I'll go do however I want to live. And I think he's supposed to be over here guarding it. And he's like, you didn't live like you believed in me. And we'll see that God expects holiness out of us. Verse 2, Peter has already alluded to the obedience to Jesus Christ. See, faith is not passive. It's an active thing. It's not something I had one time and I set it down and I'm done with it. And when Jesus returns, it's waiting for me. It's something that has to be active in my life. Alive in my life. Look at verse number 6. You see, Peter acknowledges that we all face struggles and trials. They faced Terrible persecutions. Nothing like what we face in our country today. These Christians were facing persecutions by the Roman Empire. But at the same time, no one likes to go through any kind of difficulty. Whether it be your, through your faith or just life itself, tragedy in life, loss, difficulty, suffering. Those are hard to go through. Nobody likes that. Nobody signs up for that. But look at verse number 7. This is what Peter says about our struggles. He says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's not even saying now. He's saying you need to live in such a way, even through your trials, even through your suffering and your struggles, through your challenges, in such a way that by the time Jesus comes, you're still praising Him and giving Him glory and honoring Him. And I can't do that all of a sudden if I haven't been living my life like that through the trials and struggles that I go through in the meantime. What is Paul say, Peter saying? He's not saying that God gives us trouble so that we'll turn around and praise Him. Uh, Luke would write in Acts, it's not like He needs anything from us. He simply wants a relationship with us. But it's, it's our perspective on going through difficulties. How do we go through hard times? That's what Peter is focused on. Do you go through the hard time and let that weaken your faith? Cause you to turn away from your faith? Cause you to lose your faith? 
Or do you go through that challenge and your faith grows stronger? You grow closer to God because you said, I need you now more than ever as you go through your challenge. You see, our faith is the most valuable thing that we have. Peter says it's more precious than gold. We've got to protect our faith. And when we go through challenges, that's some of the most vulnerable times of our faith. That's a time when Satan can get to work on our emotions, our feelings, when things aren't going well, when I don't feel well, and he starts working on us, and all of a sudden, like you're out in the ocean, you look up, and you got in the water over there, didn't you? That's where you got in, and all of a sudden you look up and you're way over here. And you didn't even know you moved. That's what happens when we don't protect our most valuable thing in our lives, our faith. Trials should strengthen our faith. They're opportunities for us to deepen our faith. So when we go through struggles, when our faith is tested, will we grow stronger or weaker? Look at verse number 8. It tells us what our faith does for us. When we go through difficulties in life, Peter tells us what our faith does for us. That, that we, even though we haven't seen God, we love Him. Even though we haven't seen God and don't see Him now, and when you're going through struggles, don't you wish you could just see Him now? And you think, that'd make me feel better. But he says, even though you don't see Him, you love Him and you believe in Him. That's what your hope does for you. And it causes us, verse 8, to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and will be filled with glory. You see, when you're a Christian and holding on to your faith, that hope in heaven, that hope that there's better and eternal beyond the struggle of this life, You'll go through things and you won't even understand it yourself how you're able to make it through that thing. You, 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 it doesn't mean you're walking around, jumping up and down, skipping, bubbly and laughing and happy. It might be a tough time in your life. But somehow in there, down deep, is this inexpressible joy. Paul called it in Philippians 4, the peace that passes all understanding. Something in there helps you through that difficulty. Helps you to hold on to your faith. That's what your faith and your hope does for you. Look at verses 13 through 21 quickly. Peter hit the ground running on the subject of hope. And now he turns to the subject of holiness. And what I think he says here is that hope moves us to holiness. Our hope in salvation, what God has done for us, should move us, drive us, make us want holiness. To be holy. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, you've got to have a sober mind. You've got to think clearly with nothing messing up your thinking. You've got to think clearly about how you're living your life. Are you living your life with clear thinking? Are you living a life of faith with sober thinking? And how you direct your life, the choices you make, the things you do, are you thinking clearly and thinking in terms of living 
by faith. In verses 14 through 16, Peter says, As obedient children, see there's an expectation on us. As obedient children, do not be conformed, Paul talked about that, didn't he? To the passions of your former ignorance. That helps us know these were Gentiles. Verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Do you see that? God wants us to be set aside, holy, set apart for His use, holy in all of our conduct, our behavior, everything that that means when it comes to our lifestyle. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That comes from Leviticus. So there's an expectation for Christians to live the way our Heavenly Father wants us to live. See, God expects us to live a certain way, not because we're earning anything, but because of the great hope that we have. Because of our salvation, we're moved to want to, as obedient children, live holy lives. See, your Christian friends may not be trying too hard to live holy lives. They may not be taking it very seriously. That's what it means to have uh, be sober-minded, to take this seriously, to think about it. And your, your Christian friends may not be taking their faith very seriously. That's no excuse for you to not take it seriously either. God calls us to take our faith and our life seriously, to live holy lives. Sometimes that makes you feel awkward and different. But guess what? That's exactly what holiness is. It is set apart, different, set apart for service to God. So ask yourself, how can you be in holy, holy in conduct and be at parties where people are drinking and doing all kinds of stuff and, and you're living in holiness? How does that work? Ask yourself, how does it work? How can I be holy and looking at pornography? How can a person be holy and be cussing or sexually active outside of marriage or any other thing that, the, that, that describes the way the world lives, the, the way the world says this is okay? And yet God says differently. God says, that's not how I want my people to live then I'm not conducting myself in holiness when I'm participating in those kinds of things. You see, if you're just like something, then you're not different, are you? If you're just like a thing, you're not different. And yet, holiness calls us to be different. Our hope moves us to holiness. So I'll put on here that the goal of the Christian is not gratification, but glorification. You see, the world says, gratify whatever your body wants, whatever, your, whatever you want. That's okay. You can do. You can have. Just go get it and have it. Pursue it. And yet the Christian is called to glorification. Not to gratify myself, but to glorify my God and Savior in whom I have hope. Look at verses 18 through 19. Here's the reminder I think we often need. Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, you were ransomed 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, God didn't save us from our sins to give us an eternal hope with some money. He didn't come down with gold or silver or His big heavenly checkbook and write a check with money for our sins to ransom us, to pay our ransom. He paid with what Peter calls the precious blood of Jesus. His Son's blood paid the price for our sins. That's how He purchased us out of sin. And when we obey the gospel message, we now rise with a living hope, a a hope in heaven, and it moves us to want to live holy lives. We need to remember the price that God paid for us. The price that Jesus Himself paid for us. And we need to ask ourselves, is my life an example of this, is that, that my holiness is a response to God's hope that He's given me. My holiness is my thankfulness for the hope that He's given me. That's how I live my life because I'm so thankful for that heavenly hope. If we can help you this morning, maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you're ready to Uh, uh, ask for prayers and begin learning about what it means to walk with Jesus. You're ready to live in that living hope. Maybe you've accessed that living hope, but you haven't been living faithfully. Maybe you need some encouragement. Maybe you've been struggling with a lot of things and Satan's been working on you and you want to ask for prayers. We want you to know we're always here for you. If we can help you this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing. We thank you again for listening today. If we can answer any questions for you or serve you in some way, please reach out to us. You can find our contact information and more on our website at bullardchurchofchrist.com. If this lesson has helped you, please rate our podcast and share it so more people can hear the Word of God. And please come visit as soon as you can. We meet on Sundays for class at 9 a.m., worship at 10 a.m., evening worship at 5, and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. God bless you.